Hi, everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and today our guest is Julian Zegelman, a venture investor and attorney who represented numerous startups from inception through multiple venture rounds. Today, we're going to talk about the nuances of fundraising for seed and series A rounds. Uh, before that, Julian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Oleg. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, before we get started, I like to set up the guests, just learn a, bit, a little bit more about you. Um, I noticed going through uh, your history that you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, went to the University of California, San Diego. That is right. Cool. Well, I was excited to talk to you because I just graduated here uh, here uh, a year ago, actually. I was walking through the graduation stage. So we got two Tritons on the show today. Um, do you want to just tell me what you studied there and, and how your experience was at school? Absolutely. Um, I think it's a great school. I personally enjoyed it uh, a lot. I started uh, biochemistry and political science. I uh, entered college, like I think 90% of my entering year, believing I was going to be a pre-medical student and then go on to medical school. Uh, but, you know, in the course of my four years there, I just realized that I was more interested in uh, law and business, and I detoured into law school, and I never really looked back. Um, but, uh, yeah, yes, um, it was definitely very interesting being there in the mid-90s as the dot-com boom was um, unwrapping, and there's a lot of exciting uh, startup activity all around. Totally, yeah, huge technology school, so I'm sure being there in the 90s was, like, really exciting. Um, can you, can you tell me a little bit more about, uh, law school and then, and then maybe what you did after? Yeah, absolutely. So I went to law school at the uh, university of Minnesota. So quite a change. Yeah. You're going from San Diego to Minnesota. I don't know if it gets uh, much polar opposite than that. That's right. That's right. So I went to law school at the university of Minnesota and, um, then I went back to San Diego very briefly. And I got recruited by a Silicon Valley law firm um, to join uh, join their office. And that's how I got to Silicon Valley um, in 2007, to be exact. And I spent, uh, you know, the first part of my career as a lawyer, representing mostly venture capital funds, uh, startup entrepreneurs, and tech companies. Um, and at some point in my career, I realized there was a lot of fun building companies and helping entrepreneurs and clients build companies. And uh, I uh, started to get more business savvy, um, I feel like, and expand my network. And at a certain point, um, I transitioned from being just a legal advisor, so just being an attorney, which nothing wrong with that. Um, lawyers are needed. And, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, value to a good, good attorney. Uh, when you're running a startup, but I actually, you know, became a lot more to a lot of my clients, uh, more of a business advisor, uh, network connector. And at some point I started to invest myself as an angel investor, which through uh, a number of various ventures brought me to where I am today, where I run a boutique investment bank that actually helps tech companies raise equity and debt capital. And I continue to actively invest in early stage startups um, as, as a, a small fund manager and also as a personal, uh, just a private angel investor. 
Awesome. Well, uh, today we're going to be talking about, you know, uh, seed funding and Series A, and it sounds like you have some experience uh, on the legal side and on the investing side. So you're probably the perfect person to talk to. Are there any, to get us started, are there any kind of rules of thumb when it comes to how much money founders should should ask for when they're raising uh, their first seed? Yeah, definitely. It's a great question. So typically the way the way it works in the industry, you want to ask for 12 to 16 months worth of uh, what's called runway, which is basically how much money do you need over the next 12 to 16 months to achieve milestones that get your business to the next level, uh, which means for the most part allows you to uh, show significant traction to raise the next round of venture capital and yeah, then ultimately get to break even profitability and then ultimately get to an exit point. Got it. Got it. Um, and what kind of target should you be aiming for when uh, it comes to that valuation? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, and I want to preface this that there's really what's called a standard range of valuations. So again, that sometimes shifts and goes up and down depending on both geography. You know, um, mm-hmm. if you're raising a seed stage Around the financing in, let's say, the Midwest, you're probably going to raise it at a lower valuation on average than if you're raising it in San Francisco. Um, and typically, there are acceptable ranges. Um, so just to give you an idea, I mean, from what I see out there, typical seed stage company outside of Silicon Valley today is probably raising money anywhere from three and a half to... 5 million pre-money valuation, talking about seed rounds. In Silicon Valley, I mean, we saw valuations skyrocket at all stages. And so pre-COVID shutdown, we've seen seed stage valuations of, you know, 10, 12, 15, even 20 million for some of the more high-profile companies. Um, I think they're going down. I feel in my book a comfortable pre-money valuation on average for a Silicon Valley startup at the seed stage. We're probably talking anywhere from five to maybe ten million, right? Depending on traction. Mm-hmm. So all these companies, you know, they have different products. They come in all different shapes and sizes, so to speak, and so their valuations are not the same. What's maybe like a sanity check for founders to check whether their funding amount and their valuation makes sense for their business? Yeah, no, that's a wonderful question. So I think one is comparables. Uh, For example, there's a lot of good resources like Crunchbase, PitchBook, you know, TechCrunch publishes a lot. So there's definitely a lot of data um, as well, you know, Silicon Valley Bank uh, puts out like an annual venture report. So there's a lot of data out there on, you know, precise data points, like what are the average valuations in 2020 in each sector in, you know, different geographies, etc. So my advice to founders is, you know, the venture game, it's great to be unique in your product. But it's really difficult to try and pull something unique as far as how you structure the company or how you structure your round because venture mm-hmm. capital is about de-risking and anything that's outside the norm is automatically perceived to be risky and you don't want to be perceived as being a square pack for a round hole or a risky venture by 
the way that you're structured legally or the way that you try to raise money. So from that standpoint, I always say that a good sanity check is twofold. First, do your homework. Talk to other entrepreneurs who have raised money successfully at your stage. Do some research. Talk to your lawyer, you know, their experience in venture financings. And just understand what is the range that is reasonable, that's kind of like the market norm for your company, your stage, and, you know, the place where you're at. Um, that's step one. Step two, you know, sometimes I have... Um, Companies that I work with, they do that and then they say, well, but we believe that for X, Y, Z reason, you know, our valuation should be higher. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the advice I give is, well, why don't you go out there and test it on the market? Because, frankly, the valuation only matters if the investor is sold in your company to a point where they may consider an investment. So fundraising is notoriously hard and a lot of conversations end at the very first email or introduction stage. So you never really even get to the valuation discussion. Now, if you did get to valuation discussion with a couple of investors and they rejected because they felt the valuation was too high or they came back with a counter offer, that sends you a good signal that your valuation is probably outside of the market standard. And then if you keep getting the same responses, uh, you should probably adjust it. If you want to raise the round, you know, successfully. Uh, well, first off, a great thorough answer. I have a quick follow-up question. So, given given that uh, you know uh, we're living in a post-coronavirus world where businesses across America are affected and hurting, um, but we are also seeing a bit of a tech boom. Would you expect to see those valuations go? trend up or down uh, moving forward when you're comparing it to previous uh, evaluations? You know, I think what we're going to see is segmentation. And I've already seen it in the past, you know, two, three months that we were in lockdown. So mm -hmm. anything that's to either directly or indirectly benefit or, you know, from uh, the current situation with the pandemic. So... For example, you know, telemedicine startups, productivity, work from home startups, definitely biotechs trying to develop, you know, more robust tests or uh, therapeutics for COVID. I've seen, you know, I've seen deals there close in 24 hours and I've seen valuations there skyrocket. So I think that's kind of like one subset, right? Whatever is like trending, whatever is... Uh, you know, really, uh, really popular. Um, I think across other sectors, I mean, good companies with a solid traction, probably not going to drop too much in terms of their valuation. Um, I think companies that were priced higher than the average and were maybe able to get away with it a few months ago just because the market overall was, you know, quite inflated. What I'm seeing now is that the deals that do close propose you know a discount so i see like a 20 to 30 percent discount on the market for certain deals and um and i think that's probably a good reflection of you know where the valuations are today um should they go up i mean hard to say now i would imagine with the bigger emphasis on uh, reaching break-even and being less reliant on, you know, this constant supply of venture capital, I also feel that the valuations might, you know, 
either freeze at the level they're at now or um, reach some kind of an equilibrium. I mean, I would be very surprised to see the valuations uh, continuing to grow because I do feel like for, for a certain period of time, we did reach a plateau, right? Like right before the current lockdown. Yeah, you think you would think uh, it seemed like those numbers kept growing and growing. So next, I want to talk about uh, blockers. What what fundamental issues can prevent a startup from from raising capital? Hopefully, this is not like, um, and I'll be you know. Hopefully, this is sort of like not uh, too sarcastic. But uh, you know, the biggest blocker is having a company that nobody wants to invest in. So, for example. Uh, a business model that's inherently not a venture capital business model. I mean, that, that's a blocker, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I still see some of those companies on the market where a company that could be a great lifestyle business or it could be a great, you know, professional services or kind of like a consulting uh, gig that may, you know, very well grow to, to be a business in the, you know, millions of dollars a year over time, but it's not venture you know, fundable because it lacks the fundamental scalability aspect for a, a venture, you know, venture type company. I still see some people, some entrepreneurs going out and trying to raise venture capital for it. Um, so pushing that very obvious one, let's assume that it's a tech company that is venture fundable in principle. What could be some of the specific blockers? Uh, you know, one blocker is, um, lack of a clear legal structure and lack of ownership of IP. So that happens, still happens. I mean, there were numerous, you know, countless seminars and articles and I think uh, trainings and fireside chat uh, that, you know, that that are being done. But still, I still see companies like that, uh, that either fail to secure their intellectual property rights or there is a a messed up capital structure or there is a dispute among the founders or another common one is a company trying to raise money so they can either buy out a non-active founder or you know they're trying to raise money to secure the rights to ip so anything that's sort of like complicated at the get-go is probably not going to get funded because again venture capital is about de-risking right it's not so much it's about taking calculated risk and then trying to consciously and methodically reduce that risk as the business plan is executed. Got it. So those kind of uh, big fundamental red flags, like a problem you're seeing with management or uh, leadership or a, a cap table, those kind of rigid structures that are hard to change, those will raise red flags for you. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, uh, the venture capital game is also about opportunity cost, right? So especially for early stage investors, typically, you know, the name of the game is to be active and spread your bets, you know, across a wide enough portfolio so that you have the chance of, you know, hitting a couple of unicorns um, along the way. And it just, the model doesn't work if you have complicated, highly, risky opportunities that from the get-go require a lot of hand-holding. So, for example, you know, trying to resolve complicated capital structure or trying to buy out a partner or trying to secure IP rights and launch a new venture. I mean, I'm not saying that those never get funded, but they're not for the typical everyday venture angel investor. 
Uh, and so often those kind of opportunities just don't get the traction because they cannot raise the money from the get-go. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I hear you say that and my head says op, um, opportunity cost right away. Right, exactly, exactly. It's opportunity cost. Um, another one is actually some companies that operate in an inherently limited market. And here, you know, the, the thing that I found the most surprising uh, when I to invest and it really took me a couple of years and uh, some of the first exits that came in from the early part of the portfolio to understand that the more experienced venture investors were right. So, you know, to a typical, you know, uh, to a typical serial angel investor or to a typical early stage VC fund, if you're operating in a market where the total size of the market that you can capture within a few years, so within, let's say, three to you know, five years, is less than $300 million. not a venture-fundable opportunity to a VC fund. And that, to me, seemed to be you know, pretty counterintuitive at first. I thought, what's wrong with building a company that could capture you know, a $30 million a year market, I mean, or like a $5 million a year market. I mean, that, that's still like a good company, right? You can still sell it. And and then I started to understand why as some of my early, uh, you know, investments uh, resulted in the exits and the exits were pretty small. And at that time, they failed to uh, cover the overall money that I invested. I realized that you got to play big. And by playing big, you know, a typical venture portfolio goes like that. Ten investments made, five of them typically fail. Uh, the other five, you're lucky to have three positive exit events within like the lifetime of the fund. And then for you to return the fund and deliver the type of positive return to your investors, to your LPs that allow you to make money and also to go raise a subsequent fund, you got to have at least one of those three exits be a huge blockbuster, you know, something close to a billion dollars or at least a few hundred million dollars in exit value. So you need one of those 30x, you know, 50x returns in the portfolio. Um, otherwise, the model doesn't work. And mm -hmm. to get that, every one of the companies you fund has to have the potential of getting to that size. Now, everybody knows not every company you fund is going to survive. And even the ones that exit, not everyone's going to exit at you know that level, but if you start out by building a portfolio of companies that have smaller niche market opportunities, you're doomed from the very beginning because they still going to fail in the same ratio as the companies with bigger, more bold um, uh, objectives. But when they do sell, the amount of money they bring back is not going to cover the fund and it's certainly not going to deliver a return. Um, so it took me a few years to kind of like adjust and uh, reassess. And then, yes, you know, looking back, some of the biggest returns in my portfolios, uh, in my portfolios are from those outliers. And, you know, a couple of those outliers, you know, uh, brought back all of the money I invested, as well as some, you know, um, in the case where I was managing funds that brought back all of the investors' money, and it actually made a pretty handsome return. And we're talking about maybe five companies out of like 63 companies they invested in. Now, there were other exits as well, and there's nothing wrong about a 2x or a 3x exit, but on a macro scale, you need that you know 15x, 30x, 50x exits to really make a mark. Got it. Yeah, the big home runs is, is what you need a couple of those.
Right. So that's, you know, so so market size. Um, Another one is scalability. And that's kind of, again, tied to this whole idea that you need that holy grail. You need a really big home run and exit to make the model work. And if a company grows in a consistent but slow manner, if it lacks hyper growth or potential for hyper growth, again, it's not a venture fundable opportunity. Mm -hmm. Might be a good company, but not a venture fundable opportunity. Absolutely. It could be a great company to start, maybe raise some friends and family money. And again, there are examples like that, right? I mean, there are examples like that, um, but that's not the kind of company that's going to get you funded. And I think that the biggest problem for entrepreneurs who are a little further along is getting trapped in the middle. I kind of call it the mid-stage trap. And the mid-stage trap is you're successful at raising your seed round. You're successful at raising your A round. But you lack the kind of hyper growth to really continue raising at the mid stage. And you also don't cut your burn and you don't accept the fact that you should just basically control your expenses, maybe scale down the burn, survive, build a sustainable business, and then exit it. And you continue to burn and try to raise money. And then oftentimes that's a situation where either the company flames out completely and shuts down. Um, or, which also happens, uh, you know, it's, it is somewhat successful at raising money, but when it does exit, you know, the multiples are low, and so the founders get severely diluted, and basically it was, you know, from a financial standpoint, it was uh, an exercise in futility. Mm-hmm. So again, if you see that your company is not really the type of company that can benefit from increased burn rate, spending a lot on marketing, and sales, you know, spending a lot of getting your pipeline of clients, you know, wide, if it's not going to get you to that sort of holy grail of like 10% month over month growth in the early years, mm-hmm. then you should reassess, is the entry capital the right model for you? Okay, so let's talk about the purpose and typical size of, of seed rounds. What are you, what are you typically looking for uh, when raising a seed? Yeah, no, wonderful. Um, so from what I see in the market, when you're raising the seed, you're typically looking for, again, that one year to one and a half year worth of runway. That's going to get you to a product market fit. Mm-hmm. And by uh, product market fit, I mean that you've got a minimum viable product already. You've got an MVP. That's what you spend your friends and family or pre-seed money on. Mm-hmm. You've mm-hmm. tested a couple of uh, hypotheses. You generally understand where to go in terms of your you know, product market fit. And then you raise the money to refine your hypothesis further, find the product market fit, find the sales channel and processes that work for you, understand the metrics mm-hmm. and the cost structure. If especially if it's a software as a service business, right? Understand what's your customer acquisition cost, what's your long-term value of a customer, uh, what's your churn, you know, what channels are the most expensive, you know, what channels are the least expensive. And basically do that so that when you approach a Series A stage, you know exactly where to put the paddle to the metal, you know, where to pour the money from your Series A to then focus on the financial performance and you grow the 
you know, annual recurring revenue further and basically kind of like, you know, progress to the next milestone. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of amounts, I mean, it really depends. I would say that probably what I'm seeing nowadays, again, mostly focusing on software, your typical seed round is anywhere from a million to on the high end, 5 million. Uh, but that's like an outlier. Most of the seed mm-hmm. rounds I've seen are in that one to 3 million uh, range. Got it. Well, that's what I have written down right here in the notes. So I think you're right on the mark. Um, yeah. Um, cool. So there's all sorts of types of startups, uh, you know, like consumer, um, software as a service, uh, deep tech, uh, and, and there's more and more, uh, all the time. I'm wondering, are the milestones different across the board for those different types of startups when it comes to when you're raising your seed round, when you raise series A, um, is it different or is it mostly the same across the board? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the exact precise milestones are different because they depend really on the industry, right? On the kind of mm-hmm. business it is. So if you're looking at a digital health company, it's going to have different expectations in terms of milestones and uh, uh, perhaps even revenue than mm-hmm. if you're looking at like a mobile app company, like a consumer app company, right? And mm-hmm. it's be different if you're looking like at a deep tech or robotics uh, uh, company. I, mm-hmm. I think conceptually, the conceptual expectation is the same that by the time you raise seed, you got to have a minimum viable product in hand. You got to have a complete team, and you—I mean, complete team in terms of the, you know the technical founder and the business founder at least—and you got to have some good ideas and hypotheses that are worth testing. Um, now, in terms of the revenue expected, that's where I think there's a lot of uh, deviation based on what type of company it is. Got it. So take into consideration the team, taking into consideration the type of product, how much traction is really needed uh, when you're raising a seed round? I know you said, you know, you need a, a minimum viable product among other things. Um, but uh, as far as traction, what do you need? Let's take an example of a software as a service company, right? So from what I see in the market, and again, there are outliers, uh, both ways, but uh, typically, if you're raising the seed round, you want to be in that 20 to 30k MRR monthly recurring revenue band um, to successfully raise the seed round. Now, I've seen companies with no revenue raise seed rounds. I've seen companies that are much higher revenue, but maybe had some other issues raise the seed round versus you know trying to go for Series A right away. But I think that sweet spot is. You're at about 20 to 30K, you're growing fast, you're showing at least 10% month-over-month growth, and that's when you go out and you get your seed round, maybe, you know, you raise your two, two and a half million, and then boom, you know, a year later, you're closer to a one million uh, annual recurring revenue, you're in good shape for Series A, you've validated a lot of your assumptions, um, you've got a clear path forward to the next stage. Got it. Uh, okay, next question. I want to ask about uh, convertible notes. So seed rounds, are um, they're often structured as convertible notes or safes. What are the pros and cons of using these versus price equity rounds? Yeah, sure, sure. 
Um, so yeah, so seed rounds, almost all of the ones I see are the ones I've participated in. Um, they're structured in either convertible notes or for Silicon Valley companies, it's very common to use safes. So, uh, you know, I think that there are a couple of, um, there really, there, there are a couple of, um, advantages, uh, in using them at versus doing a priced round if you're an entrepreneur. Um, I think one is the speed of execution. So basically, um, it's easier and cheaper from a legal fees standpoint to get, you know, a convertible note or a safe drafted, distributed to, you know, 10 investors and basically, you know, close quickly. Um, if you're doing a price round, there are more terms involved. Uh, you're negotiating more things like liquidation preferences, uh, you know, board composition, uh, veto rights, etc. Um, so basically, it's just you know it's more expensive. It takes longer. Uh, the number two advantage is it's easy to do what's called a rolling close with convertible notes or safes, which means that you accept the money from each individual investor as you sign them up. You don't have to wait for a closing and where everybody closes at the same time. Uh, with the price equity round, it's more common to do, you know, one or multiple closings, but you typically close, you know, a few investors or like a critical mass of the money at the same time. And there you can have a situation where somebody is lagging and then your entire closing is delayed. Um, last but not least, uh, you know, some founders just feel more comfortable doing convertible notes or safes because they feel that that way they're not a setting like a hard valuation of the company at an early stage and doing it with investors that might not be as um, proficient in their field as you know the future VCs that might come in at Series A stage. Uh, so that's one, and that's important uh, because even the conversion cap that you have in the note or safe, I mean those are easier to set then try to negotiate like the exact valuation of the company. Um, and number two, you know, with priced equity, oftentimes there is an expectation that at least one representative of the investors will be on your board of directors. At seed stage, oftentimes the board is very informal. It's really just the founders. Uh, oftentimes there's little formality to it. And so also entrepreneurs don't really feel like uh, they want to, uh, you know, they want to bring in outside directors uh, at that point in time. Got it. Uh, lots of reasons to use those uh, convertible notes. Yeah, absolutely. And it caught on. I mean, I think the series seed preferred. Mm -hmm. I mean, I see them being uh, used sometimes, definitely. Um, mm -hmm. I've invested in a few priced rounds at seed stage. Um, nothing wrong with those, but not used very commonly at seed stage. Mm -hmm. Got it. So earlier you mentioned... Earlier, you mentioned messy cap tables um, as a possible red flag. How can messy cap tables with stack notes and safes uh, derail an A round? Yeah, no, great question. So, and this is what I think I've seen actually quite a few times. Um, there is this phenomena that happens every once in a while where a company really delays its A round for a while for various reasons. Sometimes it's actually deliberate. They just feel like they want to grow more and, you know, they want to uh, raise institutional money at a higher valuation or maybe give up less control. And so I've seen this a few times in my career where you see a company that's gone through multiple rounds of convertible debt, right? 
at different valuations and then you got to go out and convert all of that at this A round. And a couple of things to watch out for. I mean, one you know common red flag is just poor record keeping on part of the company. I mean, this sounds really mundane, but I've been in situations where the company, you know, in due diligence had to come back three different times and present like three different versions of the cap table because they kept forgetting some early, you know, convertible note investors. There were some duplicate notes, you know, find. It was just like a mess. So, you know, one piece of advice is, you know, institute good record keeping, like use something like Carta perhaps, um, you know, like a software for keeping your cap table and all of your financing uh, documents in place. Uh, work closely with your attorney or paralegal. I mean, just do it yourself, but basically have very solid record keeping. Um, another one is too much dilution. Sometimes in the same situation where a company delays the A round, um, it's easy to let the numbers sleep. And basically by the time you're converting, you sometimes the entrepreneur doesn't realize how much they got diluted because a convertible note, it's easy to close and they just keep on you know, raising and they keep on closing. And then three years later, let's say four years later in one case, they decide to do an A round and then uh, you know, it doesn't quite work because with the typical A round valuation, the founders would be diluted to a point that's not comfortable for the A round investors. Um, so that's another one is, you know, watch out because all of that convertible debt or all of those safes you're putting on the books, uh, it, it's going to convert. It's going to dilute all of the shareholders sooner or later. So, you know, always a good idea to model it out, model it ahead of time and be cognizant of what all of that outstanding, you know, notes or safes, what do they mean to your cap table? Assuming like a standard kind of like market average series A happening. Got it. Uh, why is it important for investors to get large enough ownership? Well, it's important for me as an investor to get large enough ownership because, again, the model, the venture capital model only works if I, ha if I hit a couple of home runs. And mm. at the time that I hit a home run, I own a significant enough percentage to drive a meaningful return. Mm -hmm. So that's, for example, why... You know, when you're a smaller angel investor, you typically gravitate towards early stage deals. I mean, late stage deals might be less risky, but, you know, if you put it in, let's say, an, you know, like a typical, you know, 30K angel investment into a late stage company, it exits two years later and you make 2X on your 30K, the 2X is like, you know, 60K. If you put 30K into the next Google, and then when it, you know, IPOs, you get back, you know, 200x. I mean, that's a different, the math is different, right? You're getting like 600k, you know, before tax. So same, so for any investor, <clears throat> you got to put in, you basically, if it's a fund, the math is even more complicated because when you run a fund, you have a model of how much money you have under management. Typically, some of that money will go into what's called, you know, uh, uh, or, you know, like uh, direct investment or, or you know, or basically original investments. Some of it is getting reserved for what are called follow-ons. Follow-ons are basically investments in companies you've already funded that, you know, you really believe in. And so you want to keep investing pro rata. 
to maintain and maybe even increase your percentage ownership. So when you have a model for a fund and you know that, okay, um, I've got $100 million, I'm going to do 40 investments of you know, $2 million each on average. So that's $80 million. I'm going to keep $20 million for follow-ons and let's say 10 companies that really make it. You know that to deploy into 40 companies, you got to deploy an average of two million per company. So, and you know, and you need to have a significant enough percentage for that two million, where upon exit, it's meaningful. So that's why you oftentimes get people again, depending on how much they invest for their average check and the stage. But you do get it from investors that look, I'm happy to do this deal, but it's too small for me, or I'm happy mm-hmm. to do this deal, but I got to take you know the majority of the deal. Um, so you do get a lot of that um, term sheet negotiation because it is important for the investor that the investment works with the overall model for that investor. Got it. And what kind of uh, range of equity are, are, are investors really looking for there? You know, how, how big of a slice of the of the cap table are they are they looking for that's large enough? Sure, sure. So again, a lot of the stuff deviates up or down, but. For the most part, the average on the market is when you raise your seed round, you typically give up anywhere between 20 and 30 percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you raise your and that, that's like kind of like a standard outcome. Uh, when you raise, raise your A round, you typically give up anywhere from 20 to 40 percent, again, depending mm-hmm. on the size of the round, also, you know, how you know how that what the valuation of the company is etc but then the good news is as you go to series b and beyond because you're typically raising less money or you know less money and at higher mm-hmm. valuations or even if you raise more money but the valuation is significantly higher typically the dilution gets cut almost in half so like it's not mm-hmm. unusual to only sell 10 percent of your company at series b it's not unusual for some super late stages to sell, you know, five percent or seven percent of your company for, you know, like tens of millions of dollars, um, assuming your your valuation is high enough at that point. Got it. Um, okay, well, we mentioned coronavirus once, but I'd really like to dive into the effects of coronavirus on um, investing and seed investing. So, how do you think, like, shelter in place is going to affect closing deals? Uh, over zoom typically yeah yeah well yeah no, i mean i think i think we're learning really we're learning about that as we go on because i'll tell you this the probably march and most of april at least for me was a time where you know i wasn't making any new investments i was entirely focused on working with my existing portfolio companies and doing some advisory you know um for work for them um triaging uh we did a couple of bridge rounds for existing companies etc um i think that the first new deal i've done was actually in uh in uh early june and it was a deal that was entirely remote um i uh, you know interviewed the founders over zoom everything was you know done um, uh, electronically which which is you know that part is is regular that part was done for a long time and before covid the fact that you close you know through like electronic signatures and you do your diligence remotely but it always used to be the case that you wanted to meet the founders at least once sometimes you know twice or a couple of times in person 
Um, that part is not really available now, but I do think that, especially at the early stage where the checks are smaller, um, I think there's, you know, the deal activity is coming back somewhat. Yeah, it's interesting. Like uh, video conferencing is not really a, a replacement for the the face to face, huh? Yeah, it's not really a replacement to face to face because I mean, from my standpoint, especially, and I think it would affect <clears throat> funds writing larger checks even at seed stage. Um, you know, like I find it hard to believe somebody's going to write like a half a million check for like a seed financing without you know really getting into the same physical space with the founders. At that point, it could still be like a, a, a rich rich prince in uh, the Middle East asking for oil money or something, you know? Like, and I can't see people writing, you know, ten, fifteen, thirty thousand dollar checks on the strengths of like an introduction by somebody they trust, and you know, like a Zoom conference, etc. I mean, that's a different ball game. But I think for institutional guys, you know, like me, I mean, writing that, you know, three hundred, five hundred k, I mean, doing that wire. Yeah, I really got to see the founders. I got to see how they interact. I like to mm-hmm. see them in a social setting, like, you know, like going to lunch and dinner together. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if it's a bigger involvement, like if they want me to lead the financing, I kind of mm-hmm. like to spend a couple hours at their office, see what the dynamic is. Um, right. A lot of those things, you know, they're intangible, but they're very valuable and you can't do them through Zoom, right? You're right. And you're not investing in, I mean, you're not just investing in the product, you're investing in the founders, you're investing in the leadership, you're investing in those relationships. So uh, kind of hard to do when you're uh, all virtual. But uh, yeah, that, that thanks for answering that. Let's switch gears and uh, go back to raising uh, series. So uh, next, let's talk about series A rounds. And I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked about uh, seed funding. Uh, what's the purpose and typical size you're looking for when raising a Series A? So I think with a Series A, basically, there are three components. Product market fit, revenue metrics, and metrics in general, and growth. And you're really going to have all three components to raise a successful Series A. So starting with product market fit, you know, you can't really raise a Series A if you approach the investors and you're still looking for that product market fit. You're still testing your assumptions on what the product is, who your customer is, what are your sales channels, what's your market. If you're still figuring all of that stuff out, you're too early for a Series A, mm-hmm. right? You should probably do like a bridge or an extension, answer all those questions, get that together, then go for a Series A. So that's product market fit. Uh, in terms of metrics, yeah, you really got to understand that, you know, if you still have that, you know, if you went from, you know, if it if it's a year and you went from 20K a month to, you know, 30K a month, you're too early for Series A. And frankly, maybe this is not a venture fundable, uh, you know, company because maybe the kind of growth you can get to is not what the VCs are looking for. So mm-hmm. your metrics, right? You want to be at that million dollar ARR or close to it. You want to have positive ratio in terms of uh, customer acquisition cost and long-term value. Ideally, you know, you got to have a payback of, uh, you know, less than six months for your customer. If we talk about most, you know, SaaS verticals, uh, you want to show low churn. You want to show automated sales channels, meaning that it's not 
you know the founder doing all the sales you know by him or herself like you actually have team you have a process um and last but not least uh no last but not least you really gotta you know you really gotta show the growth because oftentimes what happens too is you you know sometimes companies that can't raise a series a they have that you know 700k mrr maybe they have happy customers they tend to figure out who their customer is and how to sell to that customer but they can't scale sales and so if you're looking at a company that early is not really growing i mean it's it's a huge red flag to investors got it say your metrics aren't that impressive is there anything you can do when you're raising a series a to kind of improve your chances there's a couple of things i mean again you know i mean fundraising is a game right and there's always variables in in a game and Mm -hmm. if you understand how the game works and what are the rules then you can Mm -hmm. play and sometimes you can you know you can kind of use the you know the rules to your advantage so Mm -hmm. your metrics are not that impressive what can you do so maybe your metrics are not that impressive, but you have some really high quality marquee clients. Use that to your advantage. Maybe your metrics are not that impressive, but you have like very good logical explanation of why that is. For example, like, oh, we just got hit by the lockdown. Right. Or you know, our metrics are not that impressive right now, but you know, perhaps we have this pipeline of signed contracts that are gonna be generating a lot more revenue, you know, next next quarter. Or frankly, you got to reassess, you know, one, one of the things we haven't talked about is who is your investor? Because not all investors are created equal. So mm-hmm. a deal that may be a subpar deal to a top tier VC, maybe a wonderful deal to original VC or a second or third tier VC or somebody sitting overseas, right? Mm-hmm. So again, not all deals are created equal. I mean, that's just the reality. So if you've got subpar metrics and you can't get traction raising from Silicon Valley VCs, well, maybe you should expand your reach. You know, maybe you should go talk to angel groups. Maybe you should talk to VCs who are overseas and trying to get into Silicon Valley. Uh, Typically, those type of investors don't have the kind of uh, deal flow to get into the most, you know, coveted, the most thought after deals. And so by definition, they want to do deals. They want to, you know, and sometimes they get, you know, they get into deals that may have been the ugly ducklings early on, but then actually worked out very well. And so, yeah, just expand your reach. That's the kind of advice I give. Because, you know, venture capital is concentrated on Sandhill Road, but it doesn't end on Sandhill Road. There is still that other universe of investors that may be the right fit for your company. Right. Angel near listeners, there are uh, places outside of Sandhill Road, just a reminder. Um, okay, so yeah, definitely there's more than one way to skin a cat. If you're trying to raise money, uh, play the game, figure out what else you can do. Next, I, I understand that it's possible to raise a Series A without ever raising a seed fund. Uh, what are the pros and cons of doing that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's possible. That's very true. Um, so, you know, the pros, I think, are pretty obvious. Uh, less dilution, right? Um, more equity for the founders. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes they're further along. So, you know, there's examples of companies growing organically 
and then raising the Series A at the, you know, the pretty high valuation because you know they did it when they already had like a few million dollars in, uh, you know, in annual revenue, etc. Uh, what are the cons? Well, you know, one of the cons I've seen is sometimes when you grow organically, you really there, there's a couple of cons. There's like I guess two 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 cons that come to mind. One is that when you grow organically. Um, sometimes you sacrifice faster growth because you don't have the money to fuel growth, and so you're more frugal, and as a result, you may not grow as fast. Uh, another one is that you may not be able to innovate as quickly because, again, you're conserving you know, resources, and you may okay. focus more on the immediate revenue generation and controlling burn rate versus on you know, expanding and perfecting the product. Um, so I've seen a couple of situations, actually, when the company didn't raise a Series A, and the root of the problem was because instead of raising feed round, they decided to grow organically. And what happened was they did grow and they had a nice business going, but either the market shifted in the meantime, so they were kind of like you know too late to the party because their competitors raised money and were able to grow and innovate faster. Um, or just, you know, the kind of growth rates that they were showing weren't quite enough. But I think if you if you do skip the seed and you raise the A, then, I mean, you don't have that problem. And really, you get some good benefits. And I think the only, the only other con is when you raise money at the seed stage, especially if you're a first-time founder, you get used to you know, reporting to investors, doing monthly reports, managing investor expectations, clear communications. You know, managing your company in a more transparent manner, more formal manner. Uh, there's that, you know, increased sense of responsibility to other outside investors. Um, and you kind of go through it and you get used to it by the time you get to Series A. And there, there is even more like, you know, reporting and board structure and investor mm-hmm. you know, meetings, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe sometimes the con is you didn't have all that experience. And then like you're thrown into the Series A scenario and there might be friction with your Series A investors because the company is just not set up for that type of reporting and that type of, you know, transparency. Mm. All things to consider. Um, interesting. What what are some common mistakes you've seen by, by startups trying to raise a Series A? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There, I mean, there's a lot of different type of mistakes. Again, I think the, it all starts with not doing your homework, not doing your re- research. Uh-huh. So... For example, trying to raise your Series A and the very basic one, not comparing your metrics and your you know, stage of the company to what a typical Series A investor expects. You know, that's kind of like mistake number one, uh, being too early, for example. Uh, mistake number two is not having a fundraising strategy, right? Basically trying to raise it ad hoc. And what mm-hmm. typically happens is you know a founder talks to maybe 10 random investors that they happen to know 10 investors say no the founder gets discouraged and it all ends there i mean to raise an a round and i'm not exaggerating i mean as an investment banker um you know at jaguar capital uh, where we have an investment banking arm and then we also do direct investments but like in the investment banking arm we probably close you know seven to ten deals a year and I'm not exaggerating, sometimes to close a Series A for a good client, but sort of like an average client, right? Like they're a good company, 
good metrics, not hitting it completely out, out of out of the stadium, but you know, good solid metrics. Sometimes we're going to talk to something like 200 Series A investors to get 20 investors to express an interest in talking to the founders, really diving in, maybe another 10 due diligence, and then maybe another three to five commit and actually fund the company. So I think from that 200, from that 200, you're filtering it down to three or five. Yeah, exactly. From 200, filtering to three or five. And I think that's a misconception that, uh, Oftentimes, founders just don't have a plan and a strategy, and they don't really understand like the you know the mechanics of. Sometimes it's a numbers game. You just gotta you gotta build a funnel that's wide enough so that you can trickle down to that three to five you know investors that will do your Series A. Yeah, got it. Wow, whole lot of talking. Okay, so something you talked about earlier that you wanted to talk about a little bit more, I think, was the investor opportunity fit, um, how the investor fits in with the company they're investing in. Um, do you think that this could be more important than metrics or terms for the deal? Yeah, I think that's very important both ways to understand, you know, do the research, ask pointed questions, you know, be authentic. And really find out, you know, how investors operate. Uh, because there is, you know, a lot of different approaches out there. Some investors are very hands-on, uh, very aggressive, and frankly have a reputation of like, you know, tough love. You know, if the CEO is not performing the milestones, you know, they've got a game book. And the game plays replace the CEO, right? Get the founder uh, away from the CEO position, you know, put in a new CEO. You know, some investors are very founder-friendly and they tend to be more passive. Like a corporate investor is probably more interested in the status of the technology and a potential licensing or collaboration deal than they necessarily are interested in the financial metrics, like in the revenue. So if you're raising money from corporate investor, they might cut you more slack when it comes down to your revenue. If you're raising money from an investor who is super focused on revenue, it's going to be a different ballgame. So, yeah, so I would, if you're raising money from investors that uh, may be perceived as high risk by the overall, you know, community in the U.S., like the other investment community, you probably shouldn't do it. So, you know, there is, I mean, geopolitics, right? I mean, it's not illegal. Unless, you know, they're on the sanctions list, but, you know, it's not illegal per se, for example, to take money from Chinese funds or Russian funds or some, you know, some other jurisdictions. But the reality is that might really complicate your fundraising downstream. So, so again, I think there's a strategy and um, the universe has evolved so much and there is so much money, more money on the market than let's say in the 90s or even like the 2000s, that it really does require a strategy and a preparation. Because I think the days of a founder going to 10 pitch meetings and then getting three term sheets, I mean, those things happen, but they typically happen when you're really completely like you just, the company is just amazing or the founder had multiple big ticket exits before or your growth rates are just completely out of this world, but that's an outlier. The more typical situation is even successful companies, you get like 200 people to say no to get the five people to say yes. Mm. 
Got it. So I think my main takeaway from this conversation for founders and CEOs is going to be do your due diligence, start early because this environment has evolved, this universe, like you said, it's every, every other player is doing their due, dil- due diligence. So uh, for the founders, you got to do that too. Before we get out of here, do you have any parting advice for founders? I, I know we got into a lot of detail, but uh, do you have anything uh, final you'd like to say? No, I just say, you know, again, thank you for this opportunity. I just want to say that ne- never get discouraged. I think there's so much opportunity out there. There's so many investors uh, do, do happen. Once earlier in my career, when I was a venture-backed entrepreneur, it actually mm-hmm. took two years doing a project, nights and weekends, keeping our day jobs, uh, you know, pitching in whatever we could. And basically self-funding, it took us two years to raise a Series A. We started the company in 2008 in the midst of the financial crisis. And it wasn't 2010, right, when things started to normalize that we were able to raise the A. And then ultimately we sold that company. But yeah, just don't get discouraged and uh, have a strategy in mind. Because that's, uh, that's a big part to successfully raising a seed or an A round is having a strategy. Mm-hmm. Great advice. All right, Julian, thanks for doing this. Before we go, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you? Absolutely. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. My email is very easily uh, accessed by just searching my name, Julian Zagelman. Uh, you're also welcome to our website. It's uh, www.jaguarcapital.io. And there is a link to my email and my LinkedIn uh, profile there as well. So I'm happy to uh, speak with any engineers and engineer listeners and see if I can be helpful. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Julian. I definitely learned a lot about uh, seed funding and Series A. Listeners, if you have any questions, please send us email at info at Julian, thanks for joining the show to get today. We'd love to have you on here again soon. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Oleg.